Hey everyone, and welcome to the Homicide Homegirls podcast, a weekly true crime podcast examining the true crime cases that fascinate and intrigue us. I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda. Thanks Thanks for for joining joining us. We can't wait to share the details of this wild episode with you. Today we're going to be talking about Derek Todley, a serial killer who terrorized the southern Louisiana town of Baton Rouge and the surrounding areas, and struck fear into the young women in the area. Lee is often referred to as the Baton Rouge serial killer. We chose this case as our first case because we are both from Louisiana, and I vividly remember watching the news at 11 or 12 years old and being completely horrified that something so terrible could be happening so close to home. Growing up, I lived about 45 miles from the Louisiana State University area where Derek Todley stalked and hunted most of his victims. And I lived about 56 miles from LSU. We both heard about this case as it was unfolding in the media. However, I can say that I did not know as much as I thought I did until I started researching this case. I also did not realize just how much crime happened in and around the Baton Rouge area. For example, during the time that Derek Todd Lee was committing these heinous acts we are going to discuss today, there were also two other serial killers operating in the Baton Rouge area. Sean Vincent Gillis who we will likely cover in a future episode, and another unknown serial killer who has never been identified. So I first want to start by talking about Derry Todley's background and some of his childhood. Derry Todley was born November 5th, 1968 to Samuel Ruth and Florence Lee in St. Francisville, Louisiana, which is about 34 miles north of Baton Rouge for those who aren't really familiar with the area like we might be. Florence was 17 at the time she gave birth to Lee and did not list Samuel on the birth certificate. Lee had three sisters, and I may mispronounce these, so forgive me, Tanita, Tarshia, and Deborah. Shortly after Lee's birth, his father, Samuel, took off to reunite with his first wife, Rosetta Ruth, with whom he had fathered five other children. Lee's mother later married Coleman Barrow, who quickly stepped into the father role for Lee. Florence and Coleman raised the children in St. Francisville, Louisiana. Kenny Ray Lee, one of Lee's cousins, whom everyone called Ray, grew up near Lee, and they would often play together. Ray was a year older than Lee and was about 10 years old when he first heard rumors that his cousin was peeping into the windows of homes in the area, looking at girls, in a way that a 9-year-old boy shouldn't be looking. That's kind of disturbing to me. Jeez, yeah, I'd have to agree. <laughs> At a nine-year-old peeping on girls. I just, I can't even imagine. No. Um, anyway, while in school, Lee was often placed in special education classes, his IQ measuring between 75 and 91 throughout his school years. And for reference, anything below 70 is the standard measure of mental retardation. Um, keep this in mind because this fact will be very important during Lee's trial. Lee met his future wife, Jacqueline Denise Sims, when they were just 13 years old. They dated all through high school, but Lee dropped out in the 11th grade. They were married in 1988, soon after she graduated. Nine months later, their son, Derek Todd Lee Jr., was born. Doris Lee followed in November of 1992. In addition to the family that Lee shared with Jackie, he also had a second family with his girlfriend, Cassandra Green fathering a child with her named Dedrick Toddley, who was born in July of 1999. Now we're going to talk a little bit about Lee's extensive criminal history, which started when he was just 13 years old. 
Lee was arrested for the first time three days after his 13th birthday for burglarizing a candy store in St. Francisville. He pled guilty to simple burglary, was, burglary, was placed on probation in order to make restitution. Okay, we need to stop for a second to talk about this. Lee was already robbing at the age of 13. What intarnation? Jeez, yeah, I can't. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Like, 13? Right. <laughs> I can't even imagine of doing something like that when I was 13. Right. And maybe I was just super sheltered and a little bit entitled, but the thought of someone committing burglary at that age is just mind-blowing to me. And his criminal history didn't stop there. When Lee was 16, he was arrested by the St. Francisville Police Department and charged with attempted second-degree murder after a fight oh with another God. teenager whom he tried to cut with a knife. Again, what in the world? At 17, Lee was reported to the St. Francisville Police again for peeping into windows at night. However, despite all of these arrests, Lee never spent any time in a juvenile detention facility. And this will become a common theme throughout Lee's story that he committed all these crimes but never got anything much more than a slap on the wrist. Lee also had quite a history of being abusive towards his wife, Jackie. In February of 1990, Lee twisted Jackie's arm back and threw her out of their house. After this incident, she filed a restraining order against him. Good for her. <laughs> but in May of that same year, the month I was born, so it was a good month, but maybe not so much for Lee. Lee got into a fight with his father-in-law and was arrested for disturbing the peace. Despite these incidents, though, Jackie forgave him and took him back. In November 1992, Jackie filed an absent parent form against Lee, stating that he had walked out on her and their two children. Next, in early 1993, Jackie requested action against her husband for criminal neglect of family. Lee came home, and he and Jackie got along for a few months. However, this wouldn't last. In June of 93, Jackie complained to the St. Francisville police that her husband was beating and choking her. In February of 1997, Jackie would make a complaint that Lee was fighting with her because she had been talking on the telephone. Interesting. <laughs> right. She called the police again in December 1998, alleging that Lee hit her. As you can see, Lee was clearly on a bad path, and things just escalated from the domestic abuse. That's where it starts. <laughs> Usually, in April 1993, it was a rainy night in South Louisiana as a teenage couple parked in a blue Toyota Corolla in the Bueller Plains Cemetery in Zachary, Louisiana. The teenagers were parked trying to enjoy some alone time, which is a normal thing for teenagers to do. Let's be honest. Who of us hasn't parked somewhere to be alone with their significant other as a teenager, away from prying eyes? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> anyway, <I'd be> the <laughs> anyway, the teens were so preoccupied that they didn't hear footsteps approaching through the rain. A man was wielding an axe and started attacking the couple, hitting the boy in his scalp, his arms and hands, and hitting the girl in her leg. Oh my gosh. As quickly as the attack had started, though, it was over. The man suddenly took off when he spotted headlights coming towards them. He grabbed the keys from the ignition and disappeared into the night. Once he was gone, the teenagers locked the car doors. An officer was passing by the cemetery and noticed the dome light from the car shining in the darkness and decided to stop by to investigate. Right place, right time. Right. As he approached the car, he noticed two half-dressed teenagers covered in blood. I can only imagine 
what that must have been like for that officer. Right. The teenagers were transported to separate hospitals while police searched the cemetery. However, because of the rain, police were unable to find any footprints or any other clues. Go figure. It would be six years before the girl would identify her attacker in a lineup, but by then it was too late. The statute of limitations for attempted murder had expired, and her attacker remained free to roam the streets. The man she identified was none other than Derek Toddley. Wait, there's a statute of limitation on attempted attempted murder? murder? Right. What in the world? You wouldn't think that. No. Right. It's not the same anymore. Yeah. Maybe some, I'm sure somebody will know and somebody will contact us and tell us. So if you know, if they've changed the statute of limitations on attempted murder, send us an email, send us a Facebook message. Like 26 years later, it's changed. (laughs) Just three months after the cemetery attack. In July of 1993, Lee was convicted of simple burglary and was sentenced to four years of hard labor. He was remanded to the custody of the East Baton Rouge Parish, where he spent the next two years in its prison system. Lee signed up for parole in July of 1995 and moved to Lake Charles, where he would be arrested two months later on peeping Tom charges. So, clearly, his time in prison... Did nothing. He is not, has not learned his lesson. No. He was sentenced to 120 days, but the sentence was suspended, and instead, he received two years unsupervised probation. Wait a minute. Those (laughs) two words do not belong in the same sentence. Unsupervised probation. Right. Okay. But it wouldn't be long before Lee found himself in trouble with the law again. He was arrested just three weeks later when he took a ride with his cousin and their friend. The three young men were on their way to the store to buy cigarettes when Lee spotted some Salvation Army bins and decided to help himself to some of the contents in those bins, including five bundles of clothing and a gray suitcase. Local police were patrolling the area and watched the men empty the bins. As the men left, the police gave chase and captured them as they turned into a private driveway. However... Burglary and theft charges were reduced to misdemeanors, a mere slap on the wrist, which has clearly become the norm for Lee. (laughs) In March of 1999, the Zachary Police Department had a chance to put Lee away for as many as five years. On March 29th, Lee pawned a 22 caliber rifle he had stolen from his cousin's boyfriend while helping his cousin move. Lee's cousin's boyfriend noticed the gun was missing after Lee left the house and called the East Feliciana Parish Sheriff to report the incident. The owner of Easy Pawn on Airline Highway in Baton Rouge called Danny Mixon with the Attorney General's office to report that he had the stolen gun in his possession. The owner stated that it had been pawned by Derek Todd Lee. Danny went to pick up the gun but learned that the pawn shop owner could not release the gun to the Attorney General's office. It had to go to the city the city police, or the sheriff. Danny contacted David McDavid, known as Mac, to all his friends and co-workers of Zachary PD, and told him to get with the Baton Rouge police to get the gun. Well, two days later, the gun was in Mac's office. Danny and Mac decided to turn the gun over to the feds, but before that could happen, the gun had suddenly disappeared and had not been placed into evidence. What? Yes. The gun surfaced several months later, however, because chain of custody had been broken, ZPD could not go after Lee for felony possession. Oh, this disgusts me. Yes, for sure. So in 2000, 
So that was in March of 99. And a few months later, on June 21st, 1999, as she was walking in the parking lot of the St. Francisville Square Apartments in St. Francisville, 36-year-old Colette Walker had an unexpected encounter with an African-American, well-dressed, good-looking male. This male was none other than Derek Todley. Lee approached Colette and began asking her questions. Quote, do you live in that apartment? Was that your boyfriend that just left? Where are you going? You want to go for a ride across the river to get a beer? Hold up, ladies. (laughs) Ladies, if a man approaches you with all these questions that are, frankly, none of his business... Like, just be that woman to just go off on him. I promise you, if you get a good look at him, he will just leave. (laughs) He does not want to be identified. And the longer you stare, the more likely you are to identify him in a lineup. Let me just leave it at that. (laughs) So, Lee made Colette extremely uncomfortable, and she told him, quote, I'm not going anywhere but to the store and back, end quote. Lee then asked if Colette would go out with him Sunday night. Colette told Lee that she wasn't going anywhere that weekend and began walking to her car, hoping that he would leave her alone. He then asked Colette for a ride to his car. Colette told him no and left for the local Cracker Barrel convenience store. Let me stop right there. This man is persistent. She keeps telling him no and he just keeps... And she's Asking. giving him way too much information. <laughs> right. No, you don't need to know he's going. she's going to the store. No, he doesn't know, need to know that you don't have any plans this weekend. Colette took her time at the store, hoping the man would be gone when she returned home. However, when she returned home a little later, Lee was still there. As Colette unlocked her door, Lee walked up from around the corner of the building and asked her for a ride again. Again, she turned him down and hurried inside and shut the door. But just two days later, Lee was back again. Colette was entering her apartment when Lee suddenly appeared and followed her inside. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. He asked for a glass of water or beer. Not quite sure how to handle the situation, Colette got him some water. Lee sat down on Colette's couch as if this was a normal day, just two friends chatting. Nothing, nothing crazy going on here. Oh my god. Which, honestly, if that had been me, yeah, no. Absolutely not. I'm not trying to victim blame because you truly never know what you do in a situation until you're in it. But I'd like to think if some random guy I don't know pushed his way into my apartment and sat down on my couch, I would have immediately called the police. Or I would have left. You can have this this house. Bye. Bye. <laughs> like, if you're that thirsty, go find the water hose outside. But, like I said... You have no way of knowing how you handle a situation until you're actually in it. I guess. But, and like I said, don't want to victim blame, but I just don't know if that was the best thing to do. I'm just saying that wouldn't be me. Right. Same. But back to the story. Lee started making passes at Colette, asking her to go out of town with him. He then reached over and turned off the lamp. Colette turned it back on. Lee continued to try to convince Colette to go out with him. She kept refusing all of his advances, and when he asked her again to go out of town with him, she responded, quote, You might be one of those crazy people who would kill me and throw me on the side of the road. Um, End quote. Hello? Spoiler alert! He (laughs) is! (laughs) Lee laughed and said, quote, If that's how I am, I could rape you right now, and no one would know because I'm in your apartment. End quote. Okay, pause. Do not pass go. 
do not collect $200. What? Who says that? And how did Colette not absolutely lose it when he said that? I would have lost my mind on anyone who said that to me. I don't know. I was raised with all boys, and I don't <laughs> take that kind of crap. Right. I, I'm going down swinging. I talk back. I don't <laughs> listen. Like, right. it's not going to happen for me. No, thank you. Right. After his comment, Colette told Lee that he had to go. He asked for a ride again, and again, she declined. He wrote his number down on a piece of paper and handed it to Colette and told her not to tell anyone he was there because he didn't like everyone knowing his business. Uh, shady. Um, is he insane? <laughs> he gave her his phone number like this interaction went well? <laughs> okay. Whatever, dude. Lee asked for a hug, when, and when Colette didn't respond, he reached over to hug her, then left the apartment. Um, get your Again. landlord on the phone now and <laughs> breach your lease, honey. Oh, I would have been moving the next day. The next night, Lee was back again. Colette's daughter wanted to get her fingernail polish from the car around 11.30 p.m. at night. Colette was standing at the door so she could keep an eye on her daughter when she felt like someone was watching her. She turned around but didn't see anyone. As her daughter returned, Colette saw Lee move away from a nearby tree. He asked if that was Colette's daughter and commented that she looked just like her. Scared, Colette got her daughter inside quickly and shut the door. The next day, Colette ran into her neighbor, Diane, who told her an African-American man who had been hanging around told her that he and Colette were dating, that he was waiting for her. Uh, stage five clinger? Right. Lee asked Diane if she would talk to Colette about him and then tried to follow Diane into her apartment, but she immediately told him to leave. Diane said she was worried because she had seen the man trying to look through a window into Colette's apartment. Um, what a creep. Goes back to that peeping Tom he never learned his lesson. Right. After this conversation, Colette called the police. When the police showed up to investigate, they found Lee's shoe print, which they collected from outside of the window. The stalking case went to trial, but after hearing Colette and the officer testify, Lee changed his plea to guilty in exchange for a plea bargain. In December 1999, Lee was sentenced to six months in West Feliciana Parish Prison, but that sentence was suspended. Again, he was instead placed on supervised probation for two years. At Colette, least it's supervised this time. Right. Colette was understandably upset that Lee would not spend any time in prison, for what he put her through. Colette never forgot the man who stalked her and made her fear for her life. And in just a few years, Colette would make a call to a multi-agency homicide task force that was investigating a serial killer. Colette had seen a news program about the murders and had a feeling about who had done it. In 2002, she would call the hotline to report that she knew who the killer was. She just knew it was the same man who had stalked her. Unfortunately, no one would listen. In February of 2000, Lee was in trouble with the law yet again, this time for beating his girlfriend, Cassandra Green, in the parking lot of a popular bar, Liz's Lounge, in St. Francisville. Someone pulled Lee off of Cassandra, and she ran into the bar where the owner, Liz, hid her behind the DJ booth as Lee came inside looking for her, even going so far as to go into the ladies' room. Yeah, he's totally a creep, but I'm not even surprised he'd go into the ladies' room after his peeping Tom accusations. 
Liz immediately called police. When police arrived, Lee tried to run over an officer with his vehicle in an attempt to escape. He was arrested for a laundry list of charges, assault and battery, aggravated flight, simple criminal damage to property, and attempted first-degree murder of a police officer. However, this last charge would later be dropped. Lee would spend the next year in prison. He was sentenced to four years hard labor. However, his sentence was reduced and he was released from Dixon Correctional Institute in January 2001. West Feliciana Sheriff's deputies would immediately pick him up on a court hold and he would serve a month at the West Feliciana Parish Prison. He was released again on February 18, 2001. On May 23, 2001, Lee was found guilty of violating his parole, but the parole board only reprimanded him. Lee still owed three years on his original sentence, and although that sentence should have been enforced, the parole board gave him his freedom. As we've discussed before, Lee was let off lightly numerous times. This trend would continue. For example, in 1997, a new law was passed by the Louisiana legislature that required DNA profiles to be taken when suspects are arrested for a crime. In September 2001, Jackie filed a complaint that Lee had hit her in the head and twisted her arms. He was arrested for simple battery. By law, his DNA should have been taken and entered into a database. No, don't tell me. But in September 2001, funding was not yet available to enforce that law, so Lee's profile was not taken, and the database wasn't operational until August of 2002. Slip through the cracks once again. This is just mind-boggling and heartbreaking to me. I understand that DNA is expensive and someone has to pay for it, but had law enforcement just complied with the law and found a way to take Lee's DNA like they were supposed to, five of Lee's victims might still be alive today as he would have been identified after the murder of Gina Green just three days before this arrest. No. Yes. So... Before we get into the murders, I just want to take a second to say that because Lee never confessed, most of the details I'm going to discuss regarding the murders and how they happened are based on evidence collected from the various crime scenes. I'm making this disclaimer now, so don't come for me. We're going to talk about these victims in chronological order because I figured that would be the easiest, least confusing way. So let's get right into it, shall we? First, we're going to discuss the disappearance of Randy Mabrewer. In April of 1998, 28-year-old divorced single mother of 3-year-old Michael Jr., Randy Mabrewer, disappeared. At the time of her disappearance, Randy had been divorced from Michael's father, Michael Sr., for two years. Randy worked at Synergy Home Health Care in Baton Rouge and shared joint custody of Michael Jr. with her ex. On the morning of April 19, 1998, a neighbor of Randy's named Kathy found Randy's three-year-old son, Michael Jr., wandering aimlessly around the yard. Michael wanted to play with the neighbor's son, but the neighbor wanted to make sure it was okay with Michael's mom first. However, Michael told Kathy, quote, Mommy's lost. I can't find her, end quote. Kathy, knowing Randy would never leave Michael home alone, took Michael by the hand and walked across their yard and into Randy's home through the open kitchen door. Kathy immediately noticed the blood on the floor in the kitchen. She called out for Randy, but there was no answer. She walked into the living room and noticed the blood on the floor. Kathy began to worry. 
She moved further into the house into Randy's bedroom where she saw even more blood on the bed. Upon seeing the blood in the bedroom, Kathy picked Michael up and ran home to get her husband, Robert. She told Robert that there was blood all over Randy's house and that she couldn't find her. Robert walked over to Randy's house to see what Kathy was talking about. Once he saw what Kathy had, what Kathy had seen, he knew something was incredibly wrong and the couple called the police. When police arrived, they did not find any signs of forced entry. What they did find was blood and lots of it. The headboard of Randy's bed was covered in blood. Police found Randy's contact lenses on the floor and smudges of blood surrounded the light switch. There was a trail of blood across the living room floor as if someone had been dragged across it. More blood was found on the floor of the kitchen with pieces of Randy's hair mangled in it. And I want to circle back to her contact lenses for a second um, because I read that her contact lenses were on the floor right next to each other as if someone had sh she was face down and someone had struck her in the back of the head with such force that her contact lenses came out at the same time. Oh my gosh, that's so brutal. Right. It was very, very brutal. Police found still more blood on the carport near a trash can liner. Remember this trash can liner because it will end up being the clue that would eventually solve Randy's murder. The trash can liner contained semen of Randy's attacker and abductor. Randy was just gone, vanished, seemingly into thin air. To this day, Randy's body has never been found. No way. Yes, but they're assuming that she's, she is dead. Randy's ex-husband, Michael Sr., would become a suspect in the investigation of her disappearance. He was called back to Zachary several times from his home in Mississippi to be questioned regarding Randy's disappearance. He assured the police that he had nothing to do with her disappearance, but he failed to mention that despite being divorced, he and Randy were still intimate on occasion. In fact, he and Randy had slept together about a week and a half before she vanished, mm -mm. which just makes him look really suspect, yeah. especially because he didn't mention it. You can't get caught up. Right. But years later, the semen from the trash can liner was tested and came back as a match to Derek Todd Lee. So Randy ended up being tied to Derek Todd Lee via DNA. So as I said, that was in April of 1998. And then fast forward to September 24th of 2001, 41-year-old Gina Wilson-Green, originally from Natchez, Mississippi, moved to Baton Rouge after marrying her high school sweetheart. As a child, Gina suffered a kidney disorder that required numerous medical procedures, and she was a teenager before her disorder was brought under control, and she wanted to help others the way doctors and nurses had helped her throughout her childhood. As a result of this, Gina became a nurse of infusion and at the time of her death was the general manager of HCS Infusion Network in Baton Rouge. On September 23rd, 2001, the day before her, her murder, Gina returned home from a night out with her sister at around midnight. Her alarm system goes off at 3.47 a.m. Gina got up, checked all the windows and doors, and finds nothing. Finding nothing, she just went back to sleep. That night, the alarm system scared Lee off. However, he returned the next night, on September 24th, 2001, slipped into her home, and confronted her in the hallway. Gina is raped, 
sodomized, beaten, and then manually strangled to death. However, no semen would be found on her body. The following afternoon, after Gina failed to show up to work, a co-worker stopped by her home and discovered her lifeless body in the bedroom, lying on the bed covered by a sheet, and he called 911. When detectives arrived, they find that the back door was unlocked and there were no signs of forced entry. Detectives immediately noticed signs of a violent struggle inside the home. Gina's earrings and shoes were in a different were in different rooms of the home and a clump of hair lies on the floor in the hallway. Shorts, a cell phone, and a purse were missing. Her blouse was connect, collected and tested for DNA, but there was no match in the system. Days after the murder, investigators locate her missing shorts, cell phone, and purse dumped behind a trash bin near a warehouse five miles from Gina's home. But the evidence does not immediately lead detectives to any particular suspects. At that point, it just appeared to be a burglary or theft gone wrong. Right. At that point, they weren't really sure what they were dealing with. Because at that point, Derek Tiley's DNA was not in the system. Right, and that murder was so different than Randy McBrewer's because she was completely missing. Right, and you know, Gina Wilson-Green was left in her home. With items taken from her home. So usually patterns of serial killers, those two cases don't match up. Right. So the next victim was Gerilyn DeSoto, who was a student at Louisiana State University and worked in the account services department at the college. Gerilyn was planning to attend graduate school in the fall of 2002. On January 14, 2002, at 11.41 a.m., Gerilyn sent an email to her advisor at LSU thanking her for all of her help in working towards her dream of being an occupational therapist. Shortly after she sends this email, 21-year-old Gerilyn is home alone getting ready for a job interview when she hears a knock at the door. She has no idea that the man on her porch is a stalker who has been passing by her house every day recently, so she lets him in. When Gerilyn's husband returns home around 7 p.m., he finds her body lying in a pool of blood. She's been beaten and stabbed multiple times, very violently. Gerilyn's trachea and thyroid gland were both severed. Oh my goodness. And the jugular vein and carotid artery were both severed on the right side. That just seems like such a savage attack, even bordering on overkill to me. Right. Gerilyn has also apparently been stomped, evidenced by bloody footprints on her body. There were no signs of sexual assault. When her body was examined, the text found that her nails were broken and her hands were clenched. Detectives thought maybe she had fought off her attacker, so fingernail clippings were collected in hopes that DNA of the attacker would be found, which it's a good thing that they did that because that's what ended up tying Derek Todd Lee to Gerilyn eventually. But at the time, Gerilyn's husband, Darren DeSoto, was the lead suspect in the investigation until the DNA evidence linked her murder to Lee. It didn't help Darren's case that police discovered that he was abusive towards Gerilyn. Darren also punched a hole in the wall of the DeSoto home upon finding Gerilyn's body, a fact that investigators found odd, which I can see why investigators would think this was odd, but at the same time, you don't know how someone is going to react to such a horrible situation like this. Everyone 
processes grief differently. Right. So, I wish police would stop judging victims' loved ones so harshly based on their actions immediately following what is possibly the worst news of their life. But I do agree that that would seem kind of odd. During the investigation, police discover a journal that Geraldine kept that outlined most of the abuse, including her feelings toward Darren and about herself. And I'm going to read a little excerpt from part of her journal. Um, There were a lot of entries that I came across in a book that I read on this case. A lot of them I could not read because we are trying to keep this podcast non-explicit and as family-friendly as a podcast on murder can be. But this one was relatively vanilla. So, quote, I cannot handle the pain and anger and disgust he puts on me when he curses me worse than he curses his own enemy. Right now, I can honestly say that we are each other's worst enemy at the moment. I cannot think of any other person that I truly dislike and have a grudge against but him. And I'm sure he can say the same for me, end quote. That, just reading that, knowing what happened to her is so sad. And here's one more entry that I wanted to read. Quote, you never get used to the mean outbursts and cursing, pushing around, slamming against walls, throwing things, never. He always complains because he says, I run my mouth too much. To me, running my mouth is my attempt to make things better through trying to reason with him. But every single time he shuts the door, he shuts me out. He makes me hate him, end quote. That just goes back to the way he reacted with punching the hole in the wall. Like, right. Was he angry that he could no longer control her? Right. That That's a that, good That's a good point. And from everything that I read, he was very controlling. And he actually worked at Marathon in Garyville, not far from where we're sitting at this moment recording. Not far from where I work. <laughs> right. And his buddy at work even told him the day of the murder, "Hey, is your is your wife okay? You haven't heard you haven't talked to her all day." Because he generally would check in on his wife multiple times a day to see what she was doing while he was at work. That's just which I talked to my husband a lot during the day, but it's not him checking on me like trying to control me. There's a difference. Right. It's so like he checked on her multiple times throughout the day, but he hadn't that day or he hadn't heard from her. Right. But it obviously wasn't him that did it. But right. But I mean, that should have. And he, and mean, police figured out that he was clocked in for his whole shift. He only clocked out to go get lunch at I believe it was Sonic. So there wasn't enough time for him to drive home, right. murder her and then be back at work. But his name got dragged in the mud pretty hard. So, I mean, was he a horrible, abusive husband? Yes, but that doesn't make him a murderer. Well, hopefully, he improved his characteristics of himself after this. Right, I surely hope so. Um, and actually, one of I read that one of Geraldine's friends even reported that he stabbed her in the leg with a fork one time. For overcooking dinner or something to that effect. <laughs> I wish somebody would. <laughs> right? So, our next victim is Charlotte Murray Pace, Murray, to her friends. And this one was kind of crazy. She lived just three doors down from Gina Wilson Green, who we previously discussed. 
And once Gina was murdered, Charlotte wanted to move to try to get as far away from the scene as she could. As I said, everyone close to her called her Murray, so that's what I'm going to refer to her as. According to everyone who knew her, Murray was a very bright girl. She grew up in Mississippi and skipped her senior year of high school and attended Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi for her undergraduate degree. After completing her bachelor's degree, Murray moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana to work on her master's degree at LSU. Just days before her murder, Murray graduated from LSU as the youngest student ever to earn a master's degree in business administration from LSU. You go, girl. Murray had been offered a job in Atlanta, Georgia, but had decided to stay in Baton Rouge for the summer instead of moving to Mississippi, then on to Atlanta soon afterwards. That's just... That would just haunt yeah. that would just haunt me as a parent thinking right, yeah. what if she had moved home that oh, yeah. summer you can drive you crazy with all the yourself crazy with all the what ifs right so in Baton Rouge Louisiana on May 31st 2002 at approximately 12:30 p.m. 22 year old Murray returns home from the car wash and is eating a sandwich on the couch when she hears a knock at the door the man at the door seems nice. However, she is unaware that the man has been studying her for months, waiting for the perfect opportunity to attack. Murray is raped and brutally beaten. The attack was savage and extremely violent. Around 2 p.m., Charlotte's roommate comes home and discovers her nude body on the floor of her bedroom. Everything is covered in blood. She was stabbed 83 times with a flathead screwdriver. Oh, my God. A flat head screwdriver. Not even a knife. It's not even that sharp. So, I, the force behind. I, yes. I just is, can't even imagine how horrible and painful that would have been. Plus, the like you said, the amount of force that you have to have to, to, stab, puncture, to, to yes. puncture someone's body 83 times with a flat head screw. Like, I just, that is oh, so terrible. Murray's throat was slashed all the way across, and her skull was also crushed. Her phone, keys, and purse were missing and would never be found. So this is very, very similar to Gina, Gina Wilson, Wilson Green. Green. Right. And, you know, he's pretty ballsy with just knocking on women's doors. Right. And what is this, like noon? Yeah, 1230. Right. And this trend will continue, as we'll see. Like, and I don't even like to answer the door for people that I know. Right? Like, I want to watch my phone ring. Same. When someone knocks on my door, I will likely hide so I don't have to answer the door. Like, don't Especially move if anyone. I'm home by myself. Like, don't make a sound. Right. Like, nobody We're can not here. Door. That's why I can't wait to move to a place with a garage so I can put my car in the garage and no one will know that I'm home. Yes. <laughs> but back to the story. In the summer of 2002, after Murray's murder... Southern Louisiana is in the midst of a killing spree. Because of the uptick in rape homicides, investigators form a multi-agency homicide task force, which I did mention earlier when we are talking about Colette Walker. The recent murders of the three women, the three women being Gina Wilson-Green, Geraldine DeSoto, and Charlotte Murray Pace, have the task force fearing the worst, that a serial killer is on the loose and running rampant in Baton Rouge, Based on demographics and victimology, the FBI created a profile that predicted the serial killer would be a white, 25 to 30-year-old male who is physically fit and strong, 
which is no surprise that the task force wouldn't assume the serial killer would be an African-American male, as only around 30% of serial killers are African-American males, compared to 58% being white males, per the Serial Killer Database Project. So wait, they just, like, profiled? Basically, yeah. That it would be a It's a bunch of white women that are getting murdered, so it must be a white man. Like, where's the logic behind it? I don't don't think there was much logic there. Um, I mean, I don't want to... I don't want to bash them because I wasn't there, and I think they did the best that they could, but they were way off the mark. I'm just really happy that um, law enforcement investigations have, like, drastically improved. Although Since some then. things do slip through the cracks, but... Right. Whew, man, we've This was in 2002, so... The task force created a composite sketch showing a white male with a long nose and a long face. When the sketch went live, the task force is inundated with calls and tries to follow up on all the leads. A tipster called in and told police that he had seen a white male driving a white pickup truck along I-10 between Baton Rouge and Lafayette. He told police that it looked like the female passenger was dead. He did not get the license plate number, but stated that the truck had a fish decal on the tailgate. Police would remain on the lookout for the white pickup truck. In the meantime, though, police launch a DNA dragnet since they have the killer's DNA on file. Police tested 1,000 men who were all white, and as we know, none were a match. What do you know? Go right. Ahead. Looking back now, we all know why there wasn't a match, because Derek Tudley was African American, not white. So it wasn't long, about a little over a month after the murder of Charlotte Murray Pace, that Derek Tudley would strike again. This time, on July 2nd, 2002, 46-year-old nurse Diane Alexander left her home at 7.30 a.m. to run a few errands. Walmart, the grocery store, post office, gas station, the bank, to name a few. Pretty basic errands. Diane returns home by 11.30 a.m. and is alone. Her husband, who is a delivery truck driver, is away on a run, and her son was attending classes at college. Diane begins making lunch for her son, who would be returning home from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette soon. While cooking lunch, Diane hears a knock at the door, and the man outside tells Diane his name is Anthony, and he's supposed to be doing construction work for the Montgomerys. He then asks if Diane or her husband knew the couple. Diane told quote-unquote Anthony, that she didn't, so he asked to borrow the phone in a phone book to look up their address. Quote-unquote, Anthony seemed innocent enough, so Diane handed him the cordless phone and phone book, shut and locked the door, and returned to cooking. After a few minutes, Diane opened the door again, and Anthony, quote-unquote, was flipping through the phone book and asked if Diane was sure her husband didn't know the Montgomerys. By this point, Diane was annoyed with this stranger and responded that her husband isn't home which is exactly what he was waiting for. When he hears that her husband isn't home, Lee turns violent. Lee forced his way in, grabbed her by the throat, and attempted to rape her, but he could not sexually perform. So out of frustration and rage, he beat Diane and wrapped a telephone cord that he found nearby around her neck and started to strangle her. Diane managed to wedge a finger between the cord and her throat. She is fighting for her life, and her son arrives home, and the attacker flees. 
<laughs> Diane's son is able to tell police that the suspect is not driving a white pickup truck as he had pre- as had previously been reported. And that he is not white? Right. <laughs> Lee is driving a gold-colored vehicle with a Hampton Motors license plate on the front and a dent in the hood. There was also a beige telephone cord hanging out of the window. He took it with him? Yes. Diane's son runs inside to find his mother lying in a pool of blood with her dress raised. In the heat of the moment, her son, her son's first instinct was to catch whoever had done this to his mother. So he ran back into the house to get his keys. He chased Lee but was not able to catch up to him. Diane's son did not call 911 before he fled to chase Lee. So Diane, semi-conscious, after realizing her son had left, gathered her strength and crawled to her bedroom, where she dialed 911 herself. This part of the research was so hard for me, because that had to have been one of the hardest things Diane has ever done, to somehow will herself to crawl through her home to the phone to call for help. I can tell you right now that I honestly probably would have just laid there and died. Yeah, and the same thing. I mean, sure, this wasn't the day and age of cell phones. Right. And... Probably if I was a son to a woman who just got beaten, I'd be like, uh, let me at him, you right. know? And I think that's where his yeah. mind was. I mean, he... It, and I'm not faulting him for no, that. No, he had good intent. So, I think Diane is super amazing and a strong woman to yes, be able to girl. get to the phone to call for help. Police arrive on the scene and Diane is airlifted via helicopter to Lafayette General Medical Center, where she is diagnosed with a hairline fracture, head lacerations, and other injuries to the back of her head. She is too badly injured to give police a description right away. Back at the crime scene, detectives are examining Diane's home and collecting any evidence that may help them catch whoever was responsible for this heinous attack. Detectives collected lots of evidence, including her underwear and dress, the door handle and deadbolt, the phone book, the cordless phone, and a reference sample of the phone cord that was missing a piece, to name a few. Detectives didn't know it at the time, but that reference sample of phone cord would eventually tie Diane's attack to the killings that were happening in Baton Rouge. By July 15, 2002, almost a week after her attack, Diane Alexander is finally able to give detectives a very detailed, comprehensive description of the suspect. He had neatly trimmed hair, a pencil-thin mustache, and he was African-American. A composite sketch is created by law enforcement where Diane lives. This sketch is vastly different than the composite sketch included in the FBI profile that we previously discussed, which predicted that the killer would be a white male. It will take several months for the new sketch to make its way to task force investigators. So at first, the attack on Diane was being treated as an unrelated crime. Eventually, DNA found on Diane's dress would be tested and matched to Lee. After failing to rape and murder Diane, Lee wastes no time and moves on to his next victim just three days later. Something is wrong with him. He is clearly escalating. 44-year-old Pamela Piglia Kenamore was described by everyone who knew her as vivacious, and it was said that she didn't just smile, she beamed. Which, that is a really great description. Um, I hope someone describes me like that. absolutely. Not, she lit up a room. Do not say that about me if I'm murdered, because I do not light up a room. I have a dark but, soul. I don't light up anything. Thank you. Anyway, Pam met her husband, Byron, when she was in her early 20s. The couple married in 1982 and soon began considering starting a family. 
being unable to conceive even after trying in vitro fertilization, Pam and Byron made the decision to adopt. In 1989, their son, Jacob, completed the Kenmore family. In 1995, Pam opened an antique store called Comforts and Joys in Denham Springs, Louisiana. Pam had always been a driven person and had worked in many fields in her life. She had attended LSU and earned a degree in fine arts. She had also been a real estate agent, a page in the Senate, vice president of a mortgage company, but the antique shop is where she felt the most fulfilled. On the night of July 12, 2002, Pam returned home to her house in Briarwood Estates in Baton Rouge after a long, from a long day working at her antique shop. Her husband wouldn't be home until late because he was enjoying a night at one of the Baton Rouge casinos on the river, and her son Jacob was away at church camp. Pam went to take a bath, unaware that she's left her house keys in the back door, something she had a bad habit of doing. Around 11.30 p.m., Pam's husband Byron arrives home and sees Pam's vehicle in the driveway and noticed that she had left her keys in the back door again. When he enters the home, he cannot find his wife anywhere. He enters the bathroom and sees the tub full of water, but no Pam. He then enters the bedroom and notices that the room looks slightly disturbed and that something is definitely wrong here. Byron noticed that the footstool was knocked over, pictures on the dresser were disturbed, the dresser was slightly out of its usual place, and then he saw what looked like blood on the rug. Byron called the police. After Pam's face appeared on the news, Multiple witnesses called in tips to police stating they had seen Pam in the cab of a white work truck in Baton Rouge on I-10 heading towards Lafayette near Whiskey Bay, which we discussed this tip previously. The witnesses stated that they thought it was a white male driving the truck, not an African-American male, which is part of the reason police and the task force were looking for a white male. Four days later, around 10 a.m. on July 16, 2002, Pam's badly decomposed nude body was found under the Whiskey Bay Bridge, west of Baton Rouge, with leaves and brush covering parts of her body. Pam had been raped. Her throat had been slit three times so savagely that she was almost beheaded, and each cut covered four to five and a half inches across her neck, and she was also strangled. That is extremely savage and brutal. Police found that Pam had sustained defensive injuries to her knees and thighs, indicating that Pam had fought for her life. A few hundred feet from Pamela's body, the beige telephone cord that was cut from Diane Alexander's home was found. Okay. That's the one he took that was hanging out the window? Yes, that Diane's son saw hanging out of the window. Mm, yes. Got you now. Pam's husband, Byron, was informed that a woman had been found and police asked if he would try to identify the body, but Pam was unrecognizable. Only a gold ring on the left hand of the unfamiliar woman who lay there gave a clue to her identity. That's so sad. I know. The ring was engraved with the date of Pam and Byron's marriage. Okay, while researching, this part broke my heart. I don't even want to try to imagine what Pam's husband must have been going through having to attempt to identify his wife's body. And not even be able to recognize her at all. Only being able to identify her by her wedding ring. This completely shattered me. I was sitting in a coffee shop while researching, fighting back tears. That had to have been one of the worst moments of Byron's life. Yeah, I have to agree. For some reason, Pam is the victim I remember the most vividly. 
Maybe it was all the billboards with her picture on it, begging for any help in locating her killer. But Pam has always been Lee's victim that stuck with me the most. And I do know in researching, Pam's mom, Lynn Marino, was such an advocate for her daughter. She, I've watched several interviews, television news interviews, where she was just going off about the police and how they weren't doing enough and how her daughter and the other victims deserve justice. So, yeah, I, I, Lynn, I would say I'd probably do the same. Yeah, I feel like that like, would be me. If like, I would probably, if I was the family member of an unsolved murder victim, I would be the police's nightmare. Like, right. I would not stop. Right, and the police weren't getting away with anything with Lynn. She was on them like, like white on rice. They'd see me walk in and they'd be like, oh, shoot, he's, she's here again. Right. The DNA recovered from Pam's body would eventually match the DNA from the three other murder victims. By the fall of 2002, DNA had linked a single killer to the brutal murders of four women in the Baton Rouge area. Gina Green, Geraldine DeSoto, Charlotte Murray Pace, and Pamela Kenamore. Panic ensued in Baton Rouge, as many women were scared to go out alone at night. Pepper spray and guns were being purchased. The task force was not collaborating with the local police department in Zachary, Louisiana, which had been tracking these murders from the beginning. The Zachary PD believed that the same African-American male who committed the crime against Diane Alexander was responsible for all the rapes and murders. Derek Todd Lee was at the top of the ZPD's suspect list. Lee had a history of peeping and breaking and entering in the Zachary area. He was a big man, six foot one, about 210 or 220 pounds, and physically fit. But he does not come off as the type of person who is capable of or could commit these types of heinous crimes. But we know now that he was exactly the type of person capable of committing these types of heinous crimes. And Lee wasn't done yet. Yeah, he's a lunatic. <laughs> right. Lee's next victim was Trenisha Danae Cologne. 23-year-old Trenisha Danae Cologne, Danae to her friends, so that's what I'm going to call her from here on out, was adopted at birth and was very close to her mother. Danae was a very bright girl who loved to learn. She taught herself four foreign languages. What? Yes. That's incredible. Right. She spent two years in the Army and two years in college. After a long fight with cancer, Danae's mother died in April of 2002. Since her mother's death, Danae was struggling. According to all reports, Danae was very close to her mother and visited her gravesite frequently. In September of 2002, Danae tried to commit suicide. The pills she took didn't kill her, but she was hospitalized and later began making regular visits to her social worker. As hard as she tried, Danae could not pull herself out from under the cloud of grief that was missing her mother. In the early part of November 2002, Danae did not report to her part-time job. She did not tell them she was quitting. She just stopped showing up. Honestly, I can only imagine what she was going through. My mom and I have had a tumultuous relationship, to say the least, as, as Amanda can attest to. But I'm not sure what I would do if I were to lose her. I've heard from several people that losing a parent can be the type of grief that you never really get over. And I can totally understand that or see how that would be the case. I mean, it's like that feeling of emptiness, just never going away. Danae often visited her mother's gravesite in the cemetery behind St. Charles Church in Grand Coteau, Louisiana, which is about 66 miles west of Baton Rouge. On November 21st, 
2002, Danae is at St. Charles Romeo Cemetery visiting her mother's grave. A local resident who had noticed her car at 3.30 p.m. on November 21, 2002, then noticed it was, it was still there the morning of November 22nd, so he reported Danae's car abandoned to the Grand Coteau Police Department the next day. When police arrived to investigate, Danae's keys, wallet, and ID were all found in her car, which was still in the same place where she parked it. Two days later, around 11 a.m., Danae's body is found in a wooded area by a hunter near Scott, Louisiana, about 20 miles south of where Danae was taken. Danae was found face down and naked from the waist down, wearing a gray shirt with the Army logo on it. Her tennis shoes were muddied. Detectives searched the body for identifying marks and found two tattoos, a yin-yang with oriental writing and a heart and flower embellished with the word Danae. Trinisha Danae Cologne was pronounced dead at 12.32 p.m. She had been raped and bludgeoned. Danae had nine open head wounds. Detectives took DNA swabs and by December 2002 were able to match the DNA to the other four murdered women. Gina Wilson-Green, Gerilyn Bardesoto, Charlotte Murray Pace, and Pamela Kennemore. Danae was the first African-American victim and the first victim outside of the Baton Rouge area linked to Lee via DNA. As I said before, we started talking about the murders. Lee has never confessed, so we aren't sure what made him choose Danae, whether it was just opportunity or pure chance. Normally, serial killers target individuals with specific characteristics. Sometimes it's all sex workers like Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, or women who resemble the killer's mother like Ed Yeen. Other times it's a specific aesthetic. For example, Ted Bundy preferred young, slender, Caucasian brunettes who allegedly looked similar to one of his ex-girlfriends. While Lee typically targeted brunette Caucasian women, Danae was an African-American woman. This deviation from his norm likely aided him in going undetected longer. Lee's last victim was 26-year-old Carrie Lynn Yoder, who was a doctoral student at LSU, enjoyed skydiving, traveling, ballroom dancing, and the wetlands. Carrie was also learning to play the violin. Carrie enjoyed skydiving so much that she had gone 61 times in her 26 years of life. That's pretty awesome, but skydiving is going to be a no for me. Yeah, retweet that. Hard pass, but more power to her. On March 3, 2003, at around 12.30 p.m., after spending the weekend in New Orleans celebrating Mardi Gras with her boyfriend, Carrie returned home to her apartment on Dodson Avenue in Baton Rouge after running errands. A little over an hour after she returned home, Carrie signed for a UPS package. Around 4.30 p.m., Carrie called her boyfriend to ask him if he wanted to come over for dinner. This would be the last time anyone heard from her. Carrie's boyfriend was doing some work around the house and didn't want to leave it unfinished, so Carrie headed to Winn-Dixie on Highland Road to buy a steak to cook for herself for dinner. Her receipt for this purchase was printed at 4.58 p.m. And I'm going to deviate a little here. Um, just a little interesting side note slash story about the Winn-Dixie on Highland Road. One day at work... Um, I was talking to my boss about the podcast, and I told her that our first episode would be on Derek Todd Lee. My boss told me that she was in college when all the Derek Todd Lee murders were happening, and she was a thin Caucasian brunette and even ran the LSU Lakes, so she was most definitely Lee's type. 
Like many of the women in Baton Rouge at the time, she never went anywhere alone. One day, my boss and her friend went to the Winn-Dixie on Highland Road to pick up a few things, and they suddenly got the feeling someone was watching them. And when they looked, they noticed that an African-American male in a work uniform would mysteriously appear on every single aisle they were on. The two friends didn't think much of it and got what they needed, checked out, and headed to their car. My boss and her friend were in the car traveling on Nicholson Drive when a car pulls up next to them and signals from my boss's friend to roll the passenger side window down. So she rolled the window down and noticed the man is holding some paper and a pen as if he needed some directions. Well, my boss gets a good look at this man and realizes that this is the same guy who seemed to be following them at Winn-Dixie a few what? minutes prior. Yes. Uh-uh. The man then looked at my boss and says, and I want to apologize in advance for this because it is very crude, but he says, quote, hey, you driving, I want to eat your booty hole, end quote. Um, excuse me? I just <laughs> tell random strangers that? like Again, sorry about that, but there was no diplomatic way to say that. Understandably, my boss freaked out, hit the gas, and took off and somehow lost the creepy man who was following them. A few years go by and my boss forgot all about the odd interaction. Doesn't give it a second thought. Then one day, she's watching the news and sees Derek Todley's picture plastered on her TV screen. She stopped dead in her tracks when she realized that this was the man she had encountered years no prior. Way. Yes. <laughs> It was chilling just how close she was to potentially being a victim of Derek Todley. That's crazy. Oh, that gives me the goosies. Right? Right. When she told me this story and we decided this was going to be our first episode, I had to I had to ask her, can I please tell your story? Because that is insane. So, just thought that was a good little anecdote. But, back to Carrie. So, from the evidence found at the crime scene, it seems that Carrie enjoyed her dinner, then uploaded the memory card from her digital camera onto her laptop. Her computer was last used at 7.42 p.m., and the pictures she uploaded were still on her computer screen when police searched her apartment two days later. After Carrie fails to answer her phone or return calls, her boyfriend stops by her house and finds the bedroom window was ajar. He pushed it open and climbed inside. Her boyfriend searches the apartment but did not find Carrie. He checked the front door and noticed it had been left unlocked, which was completely out of the ordinary for Carrie. With all of the serial killing going on, Carrie would have never left her door unlocked. Carrie's boyfriend immediately called 911. By this point, Carrie had been missing for two days. Carrie's keys were found on the living room table. Her purse was still on the floor by the sofa. Her cell phone was on the table beside it. There was a half-eaten wedge of cheese on the arm of the sofa. And her laptop was still open to her pictures. A wooden mail and keyring holder on the wall just inside the front door was hanging askew. The only real sign that things were not as they should have been. Detectives found no blood, nothing out of place. $44 was found in the wallet of her purse along with her driver's license and credit card. Nothing was missing. So it didn't seem that burglary was a motive here. Detectives interviewed neighbors, but no one had seen anything. Carrie's parents, Linda and David Yoder, along with Carrie's younger brother, Greg, and his girlfriend, Lauren, made the journey to Louisiana from Florida. Police would later give Carrie's purse that they retrieved from the home to the Yoders. 
Greg's girlfriend noticed a spot that looked like blood on the side of it. After testing, it was determined that the spot was indeed blood, which is so crazy to me. How wasn't the spot of blood noticed by detectives in the first place? Right. I just think it's odd that a simple layperson noticed it, but the cops completely missed it. I don't mean to criticize the police because I'm sure they did what they thought was best, but to miss something like that just seems very weird to me. The search for Carrie ended 10 days later when a commercial fisherman discovered her badly decomposed body not far from where Pamela Kenmore's body was discovered in Whiskey Bay eight months earlier. Carrie was found floating face down, nude from the waist down. She had been beaten, raped, and strangled to death. She had been punched so severely in the stomach that ribs 2 through 10 were broken away from her spinal column. Oh my goodness. Ribs had also punctured her lung and liver. Can you imagine the amount of force it would take to inflict this type of injury? That, that's absurd. That is. That's really upsetting. Carrie's eyes and wrists were bruised, and her face was swollen from the blows. A contusion covered part of her forehead. There were scratches on her lower abdomen. Although Carrie's neck was ringed with bruises, no ligature marks were found. Petechia was discovered in both of her eyes. So, for those of you who don't know what petechia is, because I didn't and had to look it up, petechia is a small red or purple spot caused by bleeding into the skin, often associated with trauma. When the DNA analysis came back, it matched the profile of the other six victims. By the time Carrie's body was found in spring 2003, more than $500,000 had been paid in overtime to the officers who worked weekends and nights trying to catch the serial killer. So, those are the seven victims that have been positively linked to Derek Todd Lee through DNA. Now, we're going to discuss some potential victims that police think Derek Todd Lee could have been responsible for, but we aren't completely sure. The first potential victim we're going to discuss is Connie Warner. 41-year-old Connie Warner graduated from Southeastern Louisiana University in 1990 with a degree in accounting, and soon landed a job with the state, which went a long way in helping Connie support her 17-year-old daughter, Tracy. The weekend of August 23rd and 24th in 1992, Connie was home alone at her home in Oak Shadow Subdivision in Zachary, Louisiana, as her daughter, Tracy, had gone to stay with her boyfriend, although Connie thought she was staying at a friend's while going through orientation at LSU. When Tracy returned home around 9 p.m. on August 23, 1992, there were no signs of forced entry, but she noticed that her mother wasn't home. However, the TV was on. Tracy thought maybe her mother had gone to visit a neighbor and would be home shortly. When her mom had not come home by 10.30 p.m., Tracy began to worry and called her grandparents but could not reach them. Tracy realized that some things in the home were out of place. She spoke to several of her neighbors and asked if they had seen her mother, but they hadn't. By 11.30 p.m., Tracy had finally got a hold of her grandparents, and her grandfather, Jack, rushed over. Once he arrived, Tracy showed him the washer and dryer, which looked like they had been pushed back and pointed out several spots of blood on the utility room floor. Under the carport, Jack noticed three buttons that looked like they had been ripped off a shirt. When he looked in Connie's 1989 Chevy Cavalier, he noticed vomit on the back seat. Jack immediately called the police. Once the police arrived, they noticed brown hair stuck to the hood of the car and marks indicating that someone had laid across it. 
There was also vomit on the right corner of the hood. There were also signs of a struggle in Connie's bedroom. The mattress of the bed had been pushed against the nightstand, and the bottom drawer, where Connie kept a can of mace, was partially opened. Which makes me think that she was going for that can of mace right. during an attack. The top sheet was tangled in the middle of the bed, something Connie never would have done. And Connie's glasses were lying on the floor. There was a small blood stain on the carpet beside the bed. A pair of pink pants and white panties bearing blood stains were also located in Connie's bedroom and entered into evidence. The police were convinced that Connie was missing and was taken against her will by an unknown intruder. However, two days later, on August 26, 1992, Hurricane Andrew ripped through Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Connie's body, which was exposed during the storm, would rapidly decompose and clues to the identity of her attacker would disappear along with Andrew. For nine days, Connie's daughter and family waited. On September 2nd, 1992, a truck driver discovered Connie's corpse near downtown Baton Rouge by the Capitol Lake, close to the state capitol building. Connie's body did not offer much evidence to the police, which was probably a result of being out in the elements during a hurricane. Right. The police could only determine that she had died from a skull fracture, most likely brought on by a beating of some kind. However, there was no other evidence, no fingerprints or tracks in the grass, no DNA. Andrew had washed away any clues that could have led police to her killer. The second victim we're going to talk about, well, the second potential victim, not victim, we're going to discuss is Christine Moore. Christine Moore was a beautiful 23-year-old African-American woman, originally from New Orleans, who had come to Baton Rouge to earn her second degree. She vanished from River Road in Baton Rouge on May 23, 2002. Christine often jogged along River Road and parked her car at Far Park Horse Activity Center, not far from LSU, just south of Brightside Lane, which is in Lee's hunting area. Christine's car would be found in the place she left it two days later on May 25th. Christine's father, Tony Moore, who had worked for the New Orleans Sewage and Water Board, and the rest of Christine's family were devastated as they worried about what happened to her. They knew she would not have taken off with someone. Christine's disappearance only caused a slight stir in the press, a headline or two about a missing African-American LSU student, because eight days later, the gruesome murder of Charlotte Murray Pace would occur and give the media, media bigger fish to fry. Christine's disappearance seemed to be lost in the frenzy. That is, until June 16, 2002, when churchgoers on River Road would make a startling discovery. Deacons of the Ebenezer Baptist Church on River Road would sometimes gather in a small clearing on the side of the church to talk after services concluded. Over a couple weeks, they had noticed dogs chewing on what appeared to be some bones in the ravine. The deacons assumed they were from a deer or other large animal that roamed the woods. But on June 16th, they became concerned about the bones and called the police. The FACES laboratory at LSU would assist in the identification of Christine's remains. A forensic anthropologist would determine the cause of death to be a skull fracture, possibly caused by blunt force trauma. However, Christine's skeletonized remains would give no further clues as to who had left her there. The dogs had scavenged her body, and decomposition was complete by the time she was discovered. Christine has never been positively linked to Lee. As of this recording, her case is still open and unsolved. Mm -hmm. 
the third and last potential victim we're going to discuss today was Marianne Fowler. She was last seen on Christmas Eve in 2002. Marianne's husband, Jerry Fowler, had been the commissioner of elections for the state of Louisiana for 20 years until he got a little too caught up in Louisiana politics. In November of 2000, Jerry pled guilty to three counts of willfully filing false tax returns in a kickback scheme that had ruined his long career in politics. He had originally been charged with four counts of malfeasance in office, four counts of money laundering, and one count of filing false public records. But to spare his wife the embarrassment of a very public trial, Jerry accepted a plea bargain. Jerry had made millions through purchasing voting machines for the state of Louisiana. Marianne decided to stay with her husband through this ordeal, which, honestly, good for her. Because I can tell you right now, if my husband pulled something like that, I'm not sure if I'd be standing by my man. So, definitely good for her. Marianne often visited her husband, where he was incarcerated in Beaumont, Texas. On Christmas Eve 2002, Marianne was making her way to Texas to visit her husband at the prison on Christmas Day when she vanished into thin air. Before getting on the interstate, Marianne stopped at a Subway restaurant in a strip mall next to Cash's Casino off of Highway 415 in Port Allen to pick up a sandwich just after 5.30 p.m. Two Subway employees were cleaning the sandwich shop when Marianne walked in to order her food. The employees chatted with her for a few minutes, like you do while, you're, while they were preparing her sandwich. Then Marianne paid for her meal, wished the women a Merry Christmas, and left the restaurant. A few minutes later, one of the women noticed that Marianne's car was still where it had been parked. And thinking that was weird, the women went outside to investigate and noticed a vehicle leaving the parking lot. One of the employees looked down and noticed Marianne's food by the car and that the contents of Marianne's purse were scattered on the ground. Some of Marianne's acrylic nails had been ripped from her fingers in the struggle and were found on the ground. The women did not see Marianne anywhere, so they called the police. There was a video camera at a discount cigarette business next to the subway that was scanning the parking lot in 55-second cycles on that Christmas Eve night. However, the camera's range of vision was partially obscured by the awning of the building. After obtaining this footage, police could, would watch Marianne walk to her car. Then they would see the lower half of a man's body come up behind her. They would watch as Marianne dropped her food. 55 seconds later, the camera cycled back around and police could see a man's body from the chest down, calmly getting into the driver's side of a burgundy truck. They watched as the truck turned onto Highway 415. And I don't mean to make a snap judgment, but did the people who set up these cameras not think to check the vantage point of these cameras at any point? <laughs> Why would you not check to ensure that nothing was blocking the camera's view of the parking lot? Right. They were inches away. Of, right. Like it's his chest. Of seeing the crime happen. Right. Had the awning not been blocking the camera's view, police may have been able to see the face of the man who abducted Marianne, whether it was Lee or someone else. Also, can we please upgrade CCTV cameras? Most of the time, these security cameras are so grainy that even if they could see the suspect, the video would be unusable anyway. Right. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox, but this is just something that really, really bothers me. Anyway, Marianne's body has never been found, and Lee has never been conclusively linked to her disappearance. 
No DNA evidence was ever found on Marianne's purse or under the fingernails found on the ground next to her car. Marianne was declared legally dead in 2004, and her husband Jerry held a memorial service for his wife on August 27, 2005, two months after being released from a halfway house after completing his prison sentence. Sadly, because Marianne's body has never been found and Lee has never confessed, Marianne's family may never know what happened to her or who she was abducted by. Next, we're going to talk about the apprehension and capture of Derek Todd Lee. In the spring of 2003, law enforcement still did not have a single suspect in custody. In April 2003, the Zachary Police Department received a complaint from a woman that was jogging that she feels that she is being stalked. When they search her residence, they find boot prints outside of her window, very consistent with someone standing outside the window peeping. ZPD assumes their local peeping Tom, Lee, is in action again. ZPD police chief gets a court order to obtain Lee's DNA without notifying the task force. On Highway 61 in St. Francisville, on May 5, 2003, police visit Lee at his house and swab him for DNA and send it to the Louisiana Crime Lab. When the results come back, it is found that Lee's DNA matches DNA from all six murders. Police did not keep tabs on Lee, and when they went to the house to arrest him, he had fled and was now a fugitive. Go figure. Right. Three weeks later, on May 26, 2003, Lee called a woman he knows in Baton Rouge, and the police are able to trace the phone call to a phone in Atlanta, Georgia. Police release a photo of Lee to the public, stating that he is a fugitive, and a tip comes in that he is staying at a motel. However, when police search the motel, he is nowhere to be found. Two days later, police get a tip that he may be at a local tire shop. Police search, but don't find him. One of the members decided to look beyond the perimeter they had set up, and they find Lee talking to a woman, likely his next victim. <sighs> right. Lee is apprehended and transported back to Baton Rouge, where he is charged with the murders of six women. Lee pleads not guilty to all charges. Prior to the trial, Lee's attorneys claim he is not mentally competent to stand trial. Psychological evaluations are performed, and it is found that Lee has an IQ of approximately 65. Like I said, remember that, because it would be important. Although an IQ that low is usually associated with mild mental retardation, Lee is found competent to stand trial by a judge. He will stand trial separately for all six murders. Ultimately, prosecutors decided to try Lee for the murder of Geraldine DeSoto, seeking the penalty of life in prison, and for the murder of Charlotte Murray Pace, seeking the death penalty. In the case of serial killers, sometimes prosecutors decide to try only one or two murders, likely the cases they feel they have the best chance of securing a conviction for. The thought being, if the prosecution can secure a conviction with a death penalty or life imprisonment, there is no sense in trying all the cases and putting the victim's families through the anguish of having to sit through a trial. Makes sense, I guess. And I would assume that they run this by the families of victims, right. and they agree to it. Because, honestly, I, I can't even imagine having to sit through a trial, a trial. and seeing all the evidence and the photos. And, and right, and hearing about... Reliving everything. Exactly. So, now we're going to talk about Derek Tudley's trials, sentences, and his appeals. On August 5th, 2004, 15 years ago, as of the day this episode is being released, which is why we released this episode today. On a Monday. <laughs> right. 
Lee's trial for the murder of Geraldine DeSoto begins. The trial lasts just five days and is centered around DNA linking Lee to the crime. On August 10, 2004, the jury takes less than two hours to deliberate and Lee is found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. On October 4, 2004, Lee is back on trial for the first-degree murder of Charlotte Mary Pace. This time, the death penalty is on the table. In addition to DNA, prosecutors called Diane Alexander to the stand to testify about Lee's attack on her. Diane became the voice for all of the voiceless women that Lee was responsible for silencing. Yes, queen. Right? The defense did not call a single witness. On October 12, 2004, jurors unanimously found Lee guilty of the first-degree murder of Charlotte Murray Pace after delivering for an hour and 20 minutes, and Lee was sentenced to death two days later. As we already discussed... Lee's lawyers argued that he wasn't mentally competent to stand trial, citing his low IQ. Although he had a low IQ, I believe that Lee knew enough to avoid detection and go unnoticed. And he knew enough that he could rape and kill women without being apprehended for years. So if you ask me, despite his low IQ, Lee knew exactly what he was doing. Right. Lee's appeal to overturn the first-degree murder conviction and death sentence was denied by the Louisiana Supreme Court on September 18, 2015. I'm probably butchering this person's name, so please forgive me, but Justice Scott Crichton wrote in the decision that evidence showing Lee killed Murray in a, quote, brutal and vicious manner, end quote, was both overwhelming and horrific. That's an understatement. Right. Before he could be executed, Derek Todd Lee died two days after being transferred from Angola Prison in Louisiana to Lane Regional Medical Center in Zachary, Louisiana on January 21st, 2016. The coroner cited heart disease as the cause of death. Recently, we took a trip to New Orleans to visit the Museum of Death with fellow true crime podcaster Megan of Sideline Sleuths. Shout out. If you haven't checked out Sideline Sleuths yet, I highly recommend it. It's available anywhere you get your podcasts. While visiting the Museum of Death, we were able to see the hospital bracelets Lee wore while at Lane Regional Medical Center, as well as a vial of his blood and a container of his organ contents. Unfortunately, photography is not allowed in the museum, so we weren't allowed to take pictures to post with this episode, but these items are there. And I definitely recommend checking out the Museum of Death in New Orleans if you get the chance. Yeah, that was such a fun day. Yeah, it was. So, in the end, seven victims were linked to Derek Todd Lee through DNA. Randy Mabrewer, Geraldine Barr DeSoto, Gina Wilson-Green, Charlotte Murray Pace, Pamela Piglia Kenamore, Trenisha Danae Colomb, and Carrie Lynn Yoder. And as discussed, there are others who have not been linked through DNA but are believed by many to be Lee's victims through circumstantial evidence. Connie Lynn Warner, Christine Moore, and Marianne Fowler. This brings Lee's potential victim count to 10. And yet, there are still other women who we have not discussed that could potentially be linked to Lee. However, we're not going to get into those because there isn't as much linking them to Lee as the previous victims we've already discussed. The saddest thing about this is that the families of these victims, some of them whose bodies have never been found and seemingly vanished into thin air, may never know what happened to their loved one because Lee never confessed. Lee spent about 12 years in prison between the time he was apprehended and his death, and never once did he admit to what he had done. 
even when there was DNA evidence linking him to seven victims. I will never understand why killers don't just confess, especially in situations like this, where a confession would have given the family some closure. Obviously, murdering anyone is a selfish act in itself, but to know that you can give your victim's family's closure and choosing not to is even more selfish, in my opinion. Right, like, just give it up already. Unfortunately, that closure may never come because Lee took whatever secrets he was keeping to the grave with him in January 2016. Well, folks, that's the case of Derek Todd Lee, the Baton Rouge serial killer. Thank you for listening to Homicide Homegirls. If you enjoyed today's episode, head over to our Facebook page and leave us a review or rate us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you want to be the first to know when an episode is released, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on your preferred platform and follow us on social media. Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you would like to suggest an episode, use the form located on our Facebook page. Once a month, we plan to answer fan-submitted questions in a segment we like to call hashtag AskTheHomeGirls. So be sure to use the form on our Facebook page to submit your questions.